This podcast of the Radio Cafe comes to you via radiocafe.org, where you can find more information and many other podcasts. Technical support comes from Studio X, providing website design, hosting, e-commerce, and social media marketing, serving Santa Fe to the world since 1994. Find out more at studiox.com. I'm delighted now to welcome to the Radio Cafe, Tom Donahue. He's director of the documentary, Thank You for Your Service. It's screening as part of the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Very happy to be here, Mary Charlotte. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. This is a powerful, a very important documentary, I think, about the effects of war on soldiers in the United States, the unbelievable lack of help that these soldiers receive when they return home with severe mental health problems. How did you come to make it? Uh, in 2012, I was given an op-ed by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times called A Veteran's Destination Shame. And the man that gave it to me was uh, my executive producer, Gerald Sprayraven, who was outraged by one line in particular in the op-ed, and that was that in 2012, more service people died by suicide than died in combat. And he was outraged by that statistic. So he called me and he said, would you like to make a documentary about this? And it had a very uh, personal effect on me because my best friend had killed himself, uh, hanged himself in his dorm room when he was 21 years old. And also my father was a veteran in 1946 to 1950 of the uh, U.S. Army. So the issue uh, was deeply personal for me. And I said, of course, I would love to. So I talked to my two producers, Alon Arboleda and Matt Tyson, and uh, they agreed. And then we went on a journey over the next two and a half, three years that encompassed 55 cities and over 200 interviews with behavioral health specialists, high-ranking retired military officials, and lots of veterans from uh, everything from World War II and Vietnam, Korea, OIS, OES, OND, uh, to kind of get to the bottom of what the issues were. And it wasn't initially, believe it or not, I didn't initially understand that it was a mental health issue. I thought the issue was about the military-civilian divide because our soldiers comprise now such a small percentage of our population, under 1%, actually go to war or actually serve in the military. So I thought they came back and they felt isolated from the larger general population. And that population did not know how to speak to a veteran except to pay lip service by thanking them for their service. So that was the initial idea that I had going into this film. And it was about six months later, in April of 2013, that I touched down in Seattle, and I met Dr. Mark Russell, a retired Navy psychologist, who laid it all out for me, who explained the crisis and why the crisis was happening. And it was like a light went on in my head. And so that's when I said, I know what this movie needs to be. This movie needs to focus on the military neglect of behavioral health. There are so many really terrible statistics about soldiers returning. For example, the number of soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who have committed suicide is greater than the numbers who died in combat. 22 veterans a day are taking their own lives. In the film, we get to see the people behind these numbers. We get to see some very amiable, lovable people who've been suffering tremendously, who's personal lives have really been shattered in all kinds of ways. One of the things that you talk about, the film talks about, is what's called moral injury. What is that? 
Moral injury is when one code of ethics comes into conflict with another code of ethics that's shared by the same person. So one code of ethics is, you, for instance, Judeo-Christian heritage. You are raised as a Christian. You are raised to follow the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments is, Thou shall not kill. Then you are recruited into the military. You go into the Marines. And you now need to uphold the ethos, the ethics of the Marine Corps. And that's okay when you are killing an enemy combatant. You can rationalize the death of someone else in wartime if that person is your enemy in war. But if you accidentally kill a family, at the time you're not processing that these people did not deserve to die in the middle of a war, and I killed them. It was like killing my own family. That can happen. And then you come home, and five years later, this is not processed. And all you can think is, I'm a murderer. I disobeyed the tenth, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill. And you, it come that, so that idea comes into conflict with your Marine Code, and you don't know how to square the two. And it causes major, major problems for you psychologically. And I would venture to say that it's beyond Judeo-Christian. I mean, this is a human thing. Taking innocent lives is not something that we're really wired for, is it? No, I think you're right. And of course, I think religion comes out of that that same human impulse. Uh, Thou shall not kill comes out of a very basic need for human beings to be able to survive with one another, right? If If it was okay to kill each other, then we probably would not be around today as a species. Right, right. Now, these soldiers are often stigmatized when they ask for help. Tell us more about that stigma. What does it look like? Let's say a soldier is in combat and that night they're, they say, I need help. What happens? Sure. I mean, there is still uh, a big stigma within the military about seeking help. And part of that is the military needs to be able to win wars. And they worry that the idea of asking for help is a sign of weakness. And if someone asks for help, then others within their unit might also ask for help, and this will cause a breakdown in command. I, I personally don't believe this is true, but this is all part of a, of a retrograde masculine ethos that's been within the military for, for centuries, even before the United States was ever created. So we need to break down that stigma about seeking, for help, seeking help. And one thing I learned through Dr. Russell is that there are all these cores in the military that are there to support many different aspects of fighting wars. There is a veterinary corps, there is a dental corps, there is a chaplain corps, there is a medical corps, there are many, many, there's a legal corps, but there is no behavioral health corps. There is no corps with a chain of command and someone accountable to any issues regarding mental health. And I was flabbergasted by that. And this, uh, this I realized, was a black hole of neglect. So it allowed for mental health crises to pop up. But since no one is responsible for that crisis, since no one gets fired, since no one's head rolled, a lot of fingers point at each other. It's not our fault. Oh, it's terrible that this is happening. But, you know, we're doing this and that and the other thing, and they're doing this over here. We don't know. And everyone always, you can easily look at any, any press notice about this issue and hear the military be flabbergasted that this issue is happening. We don't understand why. Well, that's because there is no dedicated core that is allowing to main, that is maintaining an institutional memory of the lessons of mental health in wartime. When I was watching the film, 
I couldn't help but feel that these men and women, it's mostly men in the film, but there there's certainly both who are suffering. Lord knows there's been a lot about women being sexually assaulted in the military and so on. But I couldn't help but feel that these men and women are seen as disposable. They're used. They're used often way beyond their capacity. They're because we have a volunteer military, they have multiple tours of duty. Then they're sent home, they're thrown out, they're on their own. I mean, that seems like beyond neglect. What's going on? Well, again, I think the military feels like its job is to fight and win wars. So once you are sent back home, the military doesn't feel like it's, it's, it's responsibility to reintegrate you. And then you have the VA. And you only go to the VA voluntarily. And a lot of these guys are trained and are not the kind of people that want to seek help. Therefore, they don't go to the VA. So 75% to 80% of the veteran population does not actually seek any help from the VA, physically or mentally. So that leaves this black hole that these people exist in. They, they don't want to get help. They don't know how to seek help. They've never learned how to ask for help. So what I think needs to happen is there needs to be a public-private partnership between the government, between veteran service organizations and corporations to be able to service this population. You have organizations like the Bob Woodruff Foundation. So you have 40,000 VSOs in this country. Some are very small. Some are large. You've taken millions of dollars every year, like the Wounded Warrior Project. And most people don't know which, which is a good organization, which is a not-so-good organization. And organizations like the Bob Woodruff Foundation actually apply metrics to these organizations, so they measure their effectiveness. And if the government could go into partnership with organizations like the Bob Woodruff Foundation to then provide grants and support to the veteran service organizations that are the most effective, it would go a long way towards helping these veterans. There are some wonderful private programs that you show in the film that are really helping suffering veterans a lot. We have one here in Santa Fe called Horses for Heroes. Veterans mm-hmm. are um, taught to ride horses and do ranching, and it's just incredibly powerful. And the ones that you show, there's also a, a horse program, I think, in South Dakota and and some other ones where people do ropes courses and things like that. They're very small programs. Do you think programs like that, first of all, how effective are they? How scalable are they? Well, I think they're scalable. If we have the will to scale them, if we can get corporations to come in to measure the effectiveness of these organizations and say, hey, government, with taxpayer dollars, you know, we will match those dollars and we will help support and we'll take these programs and we'll try to scale them nationwide. But, you know, there's no one size fits all. And one of the things, one of the things the film argues is that post-traumatic stress is kind of a, a blanket diagnosis for very, very nuanced problems. It's kind of like saying, anytime I have a physical ailment, oh, you broke your arm. Well, you, didn't, you don't just break your arm physically, right? You can break any part of your body. And a doctor can analyze exactly which part of your body is broken and can figure out what needs to happen to fix that part. We don't really necessarily have that attitude about mental health. We basically just assign a rating and say that you have post-traumatic stress. But you could have, as we argue in the film, things like survivor's guilt, things like moral injury, like enduring trauma caused by stop-loss, by repeatedly being deployed over and over again, et cetera. So I think we need to have a more nuanced view of mental health. So we have to be careful that we don't scale 
one or two organizations nationally and try to fit every veteran into the same program. We have to be able to analyze what each veteran needs, what's best for them. You mentioned equine therapy, and there are a lot of veterans that are incredibly, incredibly moved by equine therapy. There are other ones that it would leave cold. So we need to be able to differentiate. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, what about a functional system for mental health care for active duty soldiers? And I was thinking about this as I was watching the film, and it seemed like there was potentially a kind of a paradox. On the one hand, soldiers are trained to dehumanize the enemy. We know this. They have to do it in order to be warriors. On the other hand, they're in so often uh, a setting where there's a lot of civilians and they're destroying the lives of ordinary people, people like themselves. They never really stop being human. It tears them apart, as you said. And I'm trying to imagine mental health services for combat soldiers. And I find myself wondering, I mean, if they were sort of day to day, week to week, facing the consequences of what they were doing, would they really want to do it at all? Well, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. If we are going into unjust wars, maybe we don't want to provide the proper behavioral health treatment because we don't want them to be asking those questions. However, if the war is just, I have no doubt in my mind that an 18- or 19-year-old soldier is going to do whatever it takes to protect their family, to protect their community, or to protect their country. I think so much of the problem isn't even about their issues of morality. It's that they don't even know how to communicate problems at all. So when they get into the military, if they had a social worker that it was mandatory that they go and see, anonymous counseling, they go in and they say, hey, I just had a fight with my girlfriend. I'm kind of angry. What was the fight about? Well, she thinks I'm drinking too much. Why do you think you're drinking too much? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. And you talk it out. Suddenly they realize they're, they're connecting the dots between all of these different issues that they might be having. Maybe they're drinking a lot, not just because they love alcohol, but because they're self-medicating some problem they hadn't identified until they had talked to the social worker. So that by the time they're in combat and they hit a point of trauma, the first thing they do is not become a stone wall and not want to communicate and try to act like, I'm okay, let's move on. But they go to their social worker and they say, I have a problem. Something just happened and I need to talk about it. That will go so far to be able to help these guys so when they get out, they don't take their own lives. Now, you've been going around the country with this film. You will be here in Santa Fe. The film has three screenings, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, at the Violet Crown here in Santa Fe. What kind of response have you been getting from veterans, from civilians? The uh, response has been far, it far exceeds what I expected when I set out to make the movie. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no curmudgeon that I met who, after seeing the movie, comes up to me and says, who cares about this issue? Who cares about the mental health of our veterans? It, it's a nonpartisan issue that everyone can unite behind. And I think there's something really refreshing in this very polarized political climate to be able to work on an issue like that, where it's an issue that doesn't make enemies but brings people together on the right and the left. And I've so enjoyed being able to make friends with people on both sides of the aisle. It's been even senators. It's been an amazing experience getting this movie out there over the last year. Tom Donahue is director of the film. Thank you for your service. You can find out more at SantaFeIndependentFilmFestival.com. And do you want to give a link to your own website? 
I do. If you're not able to make those screenings, the film is playing nationally via theatrical on demand, and you can host or captain your own screening within your own community. All you have to do is go to typhusfilm.com. Thank you for your service, thefilm.com. So it's T-Y-F-Y-S film.com, and you can figure out how to do it. And I will link to that at radiocafe.org. Tom Donahue, thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Thank you so much, Mary Charlotte. So great to meet you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. To support the program, you can go to radiocafe.org. Many thanks to StudioX.com for their technical support and web design.